During the week, Brussels is busy with diplomats and bureaucrats, but it has plenty for weekend visitors to enjoy as well, where you'll find the cutting edge of Europe in so many ways, dressed up in old-world charm. Hilburn Buys is an American who's made his home in Brussels, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to show how to best enjoy and appreciate his adopted hometown. Hilburn, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's a little more complicated than that. Tell us your story, how you, an American, ended up in Brussels. Yes. So, um, in fact, I'm, I'm Dutch and American. My um, father um, worked for NATO, uh-huh. and um, NATO is headquartered in Brussels, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, just south of Brussels is where they have their operational headquarters. So I grew up in the Belgian countryside from being very little all the way until uh, my um, early teens. All right. And how do you like living in Brussels? It's a thorough pleasure. Brussels is a town that attracts um, such a wealth of cultures. Uh, we have um, a whole diplomatic community. Because Brussels must be sort of like Washington, D.C., a city of a lot of people coming in for a little while and going kind of high-powered. The parallels one can draw with, with Washington, D.C. Are, are, are myriad. I understand there's, there's more lobbyists in Brussels than almost anywhere. More than in D.C.? More than in D.C.? Yes. Okay. But if you're going there as a, as a visitor or a, a, NATO, uh, a NATO officer, but you got a weekend free, what are the highlights that you'd be sure they check out? The center of town is very compact. So we have a big market square. We know it is the Grand Place. Nearby, you have a little statue. People know about it. It's mannequin piss. All of this needs to be seen. It can be seen very quickly. But Brussels consists of 19 communes, the way that New York has uh, boroughs, the way that Paris has arrondissements. We have the 19 communes, and about seven of them are absolutely worth going to visit. And public transportation enables you to get all over a, a sprawling city quite efficiently. It's a piece of cake. A day pass costs not too much, and with that, uh, one can get everywhere. One of the advantages to public transportation in Brussels is that most of it is over the surface, and so taking the tram is a very nice way to visit town. That's very nice. While we're speaking of uh, tram rides, we have a museum for trams, and I highly recommend it. During summer times, the, the tourist months, there's a little tram, a historic tram you can pay for, uh, by going to the museum. It's included in the museum price, and it takes you through the forest to a village outside of Brussels, and it's the most magnificent, uh, dreamy little ride you can picture. A historic tram. Yes. Out into the woods to a little village outside of Brussels. So much to see in Brussels. What is the big park, Santanier, something like this? The, the Cinquantenaire. It's a jubileum park. Was yeah. Built. It's a gorgeous collection of great sites, but it's out from the center away, and somebody might go, it's almost not even on the map. I can't, can I really get there conveniently? How would you get there? One would take the metro. Hop or on the, the tram. Yeah, oh, or the tram. What would you find in this park? I love the park. So um, the park's exciting. It has a triumphal arch, which is very beautiful. It represents a Belgium being pulled ahead by the horses of progress. That's the way in the 19th century how architects would, would think of these There's poetic... a lot of grand architecture that seems to celebrate industrialization, isn't there? Absolutely. In the 19th century, it was very good for Belgium. We were, we were richer than everybody else. Well, the big train station in Antwerp, I think, has, a, has a, like a triumphal arch inside of it, and the centerpiece is a clock. Yes. Because now you've got to be on time to catch the train. The trains changed everything in Belgium. When we introduced the train, people had to... Towns used to have different times. It was based on whatever the church would It didn't choose. really matter. It didn't matter. People could be late for things that trains made people punctual. Okay, so the trains had an impact like nobody's business, and Brussels is one of the most industrialized corners of Europe, I suppose. Yes, we had the first train line on the continent. All right, now we were going to take the tram out to this big park. Yes. You're going to find... Uh, 
there's just several world-class museums out there. What would you see? Yes, I would absolutely visit the Military Museum. Mm-hmm. It's a, a museum that traces um, the history starting as early as the Battle of Waterloo. Now, you can see a great deal about the Napoleonic Wars in other countries, but here is a collection where we have uniforms from all of the protagonist and belligerent countries of the Napoleonic Wars. All of them. All of them lined up because there was a big scavenger hunt out at the at the battlegrounds. Oh, right out there outside of town right. in Waterloo. Because I was very impressed by that mu- that military museum, and it didn't even occur to me till right now, oh, of course, Waterloo was just a stone's throw away. What's the name of the park again in English? The easiest to remember is it's a Jubilee Park. Jubal Park. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Bies. We're talking about Brussels and all of its... All of his adventures. Our yeah. phone number is 877-333-7425. And Stephen's calling in from Cudahy, Wisconsin, with a comment about Waterloo, as a matter of fact. We are just talking about that. Stephen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. My wife and I were in Waterloo for the bicentennial, June 18, uh, 2015. And there were just thousands and thousands of reenactors in military and civilian costume. And it was just a once-in-a-lifetime chance. Wow, because that was a big battle. Oh, it was huge. Stephen, that was an excellent time to go visit Waterloo. And to give you a sense of the scale of the reenactment, they made the reenactment for the bicentenary the same size, with the same amount of actors as there were soldiers at the real battle. So they had that many volunteers to do this. Yep, so they're little Napoleonic associations, historical associations. Uh, you, know, ah. these, you know, these maniacs like to dress up in, in, in old clothes, and they come and in great numbers, and they bivouac, and then they go out and pretend to fight. So we have Civil War reenactors in our country, and you would have uh, Battle of Waterloo, Napoleonic War reenactors, 30 Years War reenactors, you name it, all over. Precisely. Kilburn, when it, what is if you just go to it's Waterloo a, on a regular time, a, what do you see? It's a fantastic. So during summertime, they always have a couple of reenactors. It's, it's very likely, especially on at the weekends, to find a, mm-hmm. a seven or eight people dressed up, in, uh, and it's it's nice. Then there's a panorama. The panorama is um, we, we we know these things. We've seen the historical panoramas. It's a big room, and and it, then a large painting. Oh, it's a, a big circle. circular painting. Big so circular painting. In the, in the old days, in the in the 19th century, I suppose, before they had movies, they would paint these circular panoramas, and they would go on the road, and they'd set them up for a while and people would pay to go in there and actually see the sort of surround the, the surround vision of the Battle yes. of Waterloo. and it's interesting for two reasons. For one, because it gives you the impression of being in the battle, and another one, because it's kept the way it, it was it's designed. It, it's like going into an old museum, the way that old museums used to be built. And is there an actual museum of the battle there, or would you yes, go to the big museum? There's an, there's, an excellent, there's an excellent museum at the battlefield. They built it underground in such fashion as not to uh, interfere with the landscape okay. of, the, uh, of the battlefield. Hey, uh, Stephen, while you were in Brussels, what was your most memorable meal or drink? Well, we had mussels uh, right there on Grand Place. And, oh, nice. I mean, just, well, the food was great, but just, I mean, that's... The, did you go into Such that an incredible view? Did you go into that classic uh, little place where you step down a few steps at the top end of the square and they've got six or eight tables out on the square? Yes, that's the one. I, I just love that, and it's, especially if you sit out there on a nice day and have a, a local beer and your mussels, mussels and Brussels. Yes. All right, it's a must. Hey, thanks, Stephen, for your call. Thanks, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Buys about Brussels, and Steve is calling from Minneapolis. Steve, thanks for calling. Yes, hi, Rick. Hi, Hilburn. Hello. Hilburn, can you follow up on something you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your interview? And that is, uh, could you talk a little bit about the history of the Mannequin Fist statue? Uh, we were in Brussels a few years ago and just yeah, were not aware of it until some uh, locals pointed it out, and we went and saw it and just cracked up at it. Hmm. So, what? Now, this is a, a 
tiny little statue of a little boy. What is it, bronze or something? And, it's made of bronze. And he's peeing. He's peeing right there in the corner. Yes. And people get, you can see the crowds of tourists gathering around to look at him. And I think it's a tradition where different uh, groups in the city will actually submit a, a costume for him to wear. So you can have the mannequin sumo wrestler pissing. You can have the, the mannequin Detroit policeman pissing. You can have the mannequin whatever. Uh, what's the story about this thing? Well, I have the pleasure to communicate that I'm a member of the historical order of mannequin piss. So I'm part of the um, procession that uh, dresses, undresses him. There's a little ceremony accompanied with, uh, with giving him costumes. But most of the time you'll see him undressed. Little boy, he's not very large, and, uh, and he's urinating. That's, that's what he does. And uh, there are about six different legends that explain his presence there. None of the legends are corroborated with the historical record. So, so what's your favorite o- legend, and then what's the truth? Well, one of the <laughs> legends is very simply that um, little boy, son of a nobleman, got lost, and the nobleman vowed that if he found his son, he'd be so thankful that he'd make a statue of his son right the way he saw him when he found him, and he was there relieving himself, and so that's the statue they made. Now, of course, there's no record of this. In fact, the history of Monacan Piss gets lost in the dawn of time. The earliest mention that we have of Monacan Piss is in 1425. A stone statue at that exact location is described uh, with a fountain. In 1616, that statue is heavily degraded which means it was obviously very old already in 1425 and it's been replaced uh, with a bronze statue instead. So perhaps it, it could be a statue for a fountain of eternal youth. It could date from the end of the Roman Empire. We don't know. So we don't really know. And I'll tell you, I kind of like the legendary explanation <laughs> better. Hey, Steve, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Bies about Brussels. And Hilburn, just to wrap up our discussion on Brussels, Brussels is famous for its amazing beer, and just as good as the beer is the atmosphere you find in the pubs where you drink the beer. Yes. Take me to your favorite pub in Brussels and offer me your favorite beer. Very good. Well, first of all, there's, there's a word I'd like to share with everybody in America. It's estaminet. That's the equivalent that we have to a public house. Where London has the pub, we have the estaminet. And estaminet is a um, little place, quite often dark. The walls have been browned by time and by pipe smoking. If I would take you to the laboureur, it means the laborer, you'd come into a place where on the same day you can see a criminal, an employer, and a policeman having a beer at the same time. And inside this place, they aren't chasing one another, and they aren't pickpocketing one another because they're having a beer. I like that. And in Brussels, there's this amazing tradition where every beer, every different kind of beer, has its own glass, it seems like, and it must be served in the proper glass. Yes, we're very, we're very strict about this. Um, I would certainly... Expect to receive an apology if uh, if if, if, if a your beer's not may came in a glass that was meant for Estella. They would actually ask you before they served it. I'm sorry, we don't have a glass for a chimay. Would you mind having it in a Stella glass? That is correct, and I th- and I think as long as it's acknowledged, there you go. It's just fine. And Hilburn, when we're enjoying that beer, how would we toast to each other's well-being? Opibacus. Literally, op Literally, it means this is to your face, but it, it, it means it's here's to you, essentially. Op ubacus. Hilburn Weiss, thanks so much for a, a little better understanding of your amazing city. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.